0: Hey, listeners, it's Dave Berta, producer Adam Rosenhart, asking you a huge favor. From May 18th to June 17th, we're asking our listeners to do a little survey for us so we can learn a little bit more about you and find the right kinds of advertisers to join the network, which helps power all the podcasts on the network. If you visit albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey, it would do us a huge favor if you filled out that survey. And if you do, There's even an incentive. You could choose to be entered into a draw to win one of three cash prizes of $100. You don't have to enter the draw, but it's definitely an option available to you. So, albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. You'll be helping not only Dave Berta out a lot, but all the members of the Alberta Podcast Network. We are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network Powered by ATB. So remember, to fill out that survey before June 17th, 2019, you could win one of three cash prizes of $100. Go to albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey.
1: Thanks. I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Leanne Bell. I'm Chris Anderson, And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on... Monday, May 20th, 2019, and we're joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hello. Hey, Adam. Uh, The legislature will return tomorrow for the first time since the United Conservative Party formed government in April's election. We're going to talk about what to expect from the UCP and the NDP in this session, as well as how cabinet ministers and critics will line up, because both uh, the cabinet's been appointed and the opposition critics. There's only one party in the opposition now, uh, and the critics have been appointed. Uh, Also, the federal election is coming. Uh, What will Canadians be talking about on the political barbecue circuit this summer? And we'll answer some listener questions in our mails bag segment. But first, uh, I'd like to introduce and welcome our guest co-hosts for the show. Welcome to Leanne Bell and Chris Henderson, who is not a member of a political party.
2: (laughs) Thanks, Dave.
1: So, um, um, can you guys just... uh, Maybe say a little bit about yourself. Now, Leanne, you've been on the on the podcast before. I think you were on episode five or episode six. Welcome back. We're, we're excited to have you back.
3: Thank you. I am very excited to talk about the future of the province and the country. I think it's going to be a fun episode. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Great. Chris, uh, who's, uh, not <laughs> who's not a member of a political party? Who's not a member of a political
2: party? No, I'm really excited to be here. This is, my think, my second time on the show. Yeah. And um, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not as excited to talk about the province, but I'm sort of excited to talk about the future of the country.
1: Hey, well, that's great. And Chris, I think you joined us as, at a, a cameo appearance on uh, on the end of maybe episode eleven or episode twelve.
2: I, did. I I think I swooped in at the end and
1: said something snide and then got out of there. Yeah, it was. It was the highlight of that episode. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you
2: got that far into the episode and
1: yeah. Well, thanks guys for joining us. Uh, so. As I said, the legislature will return tomorrow. It's the first time uh, since the UCP formed government in the April 16th election. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about what to expect from the UCP and the NDP in this session, as as well as how the cabinet and the critics line up. Now, the first thing that uh, that I guess is notable in this session is that it's a summer session. So it's going to be returning on May, May 21st. And I think the legislative calendar has it going all the way to August 1st, which is Kind of unusual, not unprecedented in Alberta politics. But we haven't really had summer sessions recently. Uh, I look back at the legislative calendar going back to, I think, the 1970s. And I think there, was a, there were three or four years in the 1980s where, where the legislature sat from June all the way till September, like all the way through the summer, which is hideous considering how hot it gets in the legislature. And I imagine, I don't think there's really air conditioning in there now. I can't imagine there was air conditioning in the 1980s. No, I I don't think they've
2: made any improvements to that building since the 1970s. Yeah, <laughs> one way <laughs> or, or the or, other, or, <laughs>
1: or earlier. Uh, so it'll it'll be interesting to see uh, how uh, how that all how that plays out over the summer. Do you guys have any thoughts on uh, on what to expect from uh, from the UCP? It looks like they're going to come through. Uh, well, starting uh, with their engines hot, they've I think with their three pieces of legislation, they have three or four pieces of legislation they've already said they're going to introduce. Uh, what do you guys think we can expect?
3: I think it's interesting that uh, Jason has decided to uh, implement his mandate very quickly. He has a clear voter intention on doing the repealing the carbon tax, uh, doing a lot of the stuff he campaigned on as quickly as possible. And I think that as much of that that can get done before the federal election, um, will set a, a good tone for the province and economic growth and getting Alberta back on track.
2: What are the four bills that, he's, that they're putting forward, Dave? Do you?
1: Well, the, the, I think the four that they've talked about, and be, there will be more. So Bill 1, the, as Leanne said, the repeal of the carbon tax bill. Um, bill 2 was the Open for Business Act, I think is what he called it, and that's repealing a number of the employment standards. Mm-hmm. The I think that had to do with something with the, I don't know if they're going to open the minimum wage in that one but it had to do with basically the labor law reforms that the NDP implemented. Bill three was the cut the corporate income tax bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he's also talked about repealing bill six. And I think they've, they're calling that one the farm freedom act. Now I went through the UCP platform and page by page, and it's like a 300 page document or it felt like a 300 page document. And I found at least, this is just a, 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 at a glance, I found at least 26 mentions of new bills or bills that they specifically said they were going to amend or repeal. So, I don't know how much they're going to fit in this summer. They might not do it all in one in the yeah. one summer session, but it, looking at the UCP platform, it gives you an idea of the direction that they're going and it's a pretty some of them are pretty broad. Some of them are pretty odd, not really some of them are probably not what Albertans specifically went out and voted for. like I doubt you'd have many many people say, I'm voting for the United Conservative Party because they want to re-implement the senatorial selection Act. Yeah no. so you know so, I... so some of that stuff is, is is kind of the I think the little pet. Issues for some of the UCP?
3: I would argue, though, that while maybe uh, Albertans didn't vote specifically for that, they voted for broad change and a very uh, comprehensive list. It wasn't maybe one specific policy, but it was that there was, in fact, you know, 300 and some policy uh, promises, that there was a comprehensive vision for what Alberta should look like, and that maybe the, that's a great example of something where. Um, you know, we're looking for more democratic accountability uh, with senators or, or just generally more democratic accountability fits into, uh, you know, a broader voting uh, coalition.
2: Yeah, I think <clears throat> I'd be interested to see how, I mean, during the election and in the run up to the election, the carbon tax, the labor, uh, the labor um, work that the NDP did. And um, what was that last one? What was the
1: third one? the the um, oh, corporate sec- cor- com- corporate income tax, corporate and, then income bill tax and bill 6
2: yeah. so talking about bill 6 talking about labor reform and talking about carbon tax it was like we're going to just get rid of it yeah. i'd be really interested to see how much of it they actually get rid of because i i feel like now that they're in they're pulling back on some of it a little bit i think bill 6 might go entirely but i think the labor reforms will probably get you know i think originally it was like a full we're just going to you know set the clock back to before the ndp were around but i think there's some there's some uh, some things in, that have been done on those bills with the NDP that I think they m- either might want to keep or they might not or might not be able to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how ideological they are about that and how practical they decide to be. Uh, <clears throat> I have to admit I've been struck by two things by this government: is the they're much more practical than I thought they would be, uh, and their and the pace that they're they're pushing at is like is in, in, incredible and I I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's Jason Kenny like you know working however many hours a day to get get things done but they're they're moving at a pretty good clip people are gonna opposition anybody outside the government that's protesting the government are going to need to really learn to keep up
1: yeah do you think they can maintain that pace over the summer well
2: I think they've been planning
1: to be in power for a
2: while I mean I think they I think you know whether you consider it hubris or not they, I think, have been. I think they did quite a bit of work before the election to make sure that that they could keep a good pace for quite some time. Uh, so I think they can probably keep it going over the summer. I think they do want to get a lot done before the federal election. I think that mm-hmm. uh, a large, I mean, uh, as much as it's you know what they're trying to get done, I think uh, for Albertans, I guess the a lot of it is like they are trying to punish the uh, the federal liberals quite a bit so that they can handicap them as much as they can during the election.
3: I also think that voters were very specific in what they wanted from the government. Um, Early on, they wanted change as quickly as possible. Um, Early on, they, you know, they have been very vocal, Albertans have been very vocal about what they do not like that the NDP implemented. So from that standpoint, I think it's been very um, efficient to identify what needed to be changed as quickly as possible.
2: True, but I think repealing, like, Bill 6, Holus Bolus is probably a bad idea. Uh, the NDP introduced Bill 6. It was – it did not go over well at all. It was probably – I mean, it felt like an attack on or, or, – rural Alberta felt like it was an attack on them. And – and it was a badly constructed bill. You know, people were sitting at consultation uh, sessions and watching the debate of the bill in the legislature on their phone, which is not really a great look in terms of transparency with government. But over the over the years, they I think they worked well with uh, with lobby groups from the from farmers and from rural Alberta to get to make changes to that bill. That I think. Made a number of people pretty happy with it, uh, so I think just getting rid of it, I think, is would be more of a symbolic move. I think that you know scalping it would probably be a lot it would serve Albertans better, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I guess this is kind of looking at the uh, the UCP agenda. It's now we're n- we're now in a position of trying to figure out what was campaign rhetoric, what were the promises made. In, in, on the campaign trail to mobilize UCP voters, and what is practical to actually yeah. implement in government, I think the UCP actually will implement quite a bit of what was in their platform. I mean, yeah. you might see a bit of looking at, you know, looking at some of the, the, the bigger, more specific promises, and, and taking a look of the, the actual reality of, of, of how they've been impl- how, they, how, how what it would mean to repeal certain bills, or what it would mean to impl- impl- actually implement certain certain uh, promises. And then you might see that the timelines change or you might see them scale back a bit. I think it'll be interesting to see what they scale back a bit if they, if they decide to do that. Um, uh, I think on Bill six, for example, I think that the, you know there probably th- there could be things that they actually keep. Um, I think that symbolically just re- repealing the bill and int- introducing a new bill is uh, is something that's very important for their voters um, i think in, I think looking at i mean I t- you take promises like the the promise to stop the construction of the new super lab for example yeah um, we've seen them kind of take a pause on that and say they're going to take a look at what what exactly that would mean because I think there's you know there have been reports that have been published the Health Quality Council has already published reports going back to the NDP government talking about how there's there's need for some kind of expansion or some kind of new space for for lab lab testing and lab technology so just re- reverting back to the initial or to the to the what we had before in terms of lab services, probably isn't going to be realistic for any government. So it'll be interesting to see which uh, what they do there.
3: I think that um, Jason Kenney is obviously brilliant and has very well thought out his plan. I think that we're talking about on the margins of tactics of what he'll change, but I think overall strategically, uh, Jason knew exactly what he was planning to do and what that would look like and had a, a strategy for that and perhaps the margins of how much can get done in what time and what the process looks like will be adjusted, but I I don't think that uh, Jason wrote his platform with a lot of, of, you know, um, starry-eyed plans for the province. I think he was very clear about what he was going to do and what he was campaigning on and what that would look like. I think the tactics may be adjusted, but I I, I don't think that we'll see overall adjustments to uh, the strategy.
1: So you think the platform is what's going to be their agenda. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah,
2: I, and I, I agree, but I think there's, like, I think, you know, saying something like we're going to repeal the WCB reforms is, is like, a really easy thing. It's a really smart talking point. You know, you don't want to say we're going to repeal the following things from the WCB uh, uh, review. So just pulling it entirely, I think, is, is not a good idea. Like, there's changes that the NDP made, like... Uh, presumptive cancer coverage for female firefighters like that like that's something that almost every province of other than Alberta has and should stay like right? like you mm-hmm. can't just if you take out everything you're gonna like people are really going to be adversely affected
1: yeah and I think we'll get I mean obviously we'll have a better idea once the legislature starts and in, in in future episodes going into uh into the summer when they actually introduce the legislation and where they're gonna be in the heat of debating it, we'll have a better idea of what exactly what, what is included and what's not in the in this session and, and maybe, you know, in and what areas they're 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 tackling first and, and with what focus. So. Yeah. so looking at the cabinet and the critic lineups. Now this was really interesting. So the provincial cabinet was appointed I think three weeks ago it was appointed, uh, very soon after the election, and last week NDP MLAs were sworn in. And their critic portfolios were announced shortly after. Now, I think this is really interesting because we're, we're going into a situation in the legislature where there are only two political parties. And this is usually usually there's a third party or a fourth party in the legislature. It's, it's actually quite rare in Alberta politics where there isn't actually where there's only two parties. So there's the government and the official opposition. Uh, what do you guys think of the uh, of the critic lineups? What do you think of the matchups? And the I mean c- sorry, cabinet to create a So are there any any ones that you think will be interesting to watch?
3: There are four in particular that I singled out as indicators uh, both ways, and that I think will be very fascinating to watch. Um, David Shepherd in health uh, versus Shandro. Uh One of the things I was I was doing a bit of digging um, about sort of what the NDP caucus looks like and who has experience pre-government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's only three that have ever seen opposition, uh, Villis, uh, and Notley. So watching uh, David Shepard and some of these guys who are going to have to do a lot of research, a lot of digging, cultivate relationships, uh, have a really good trap line with stakeholders, uh, you know th- th- it's a big jump from being in government where you have a bureaucracy that that helps you along with that. you're well staffed you 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 know a lot of that is handed to you. And then when you move into opposition, which is where I spent most of my time, uh, you have to do a lot of digging. you got you gotta have a lot of grit to yourself and and uh, and be very thorough. It's a lot of work. Uh, so I think it's very interesting that David Shepard got put in help it's a great opportunity for him to, you know, sort of showcase his hustle. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to watch him versus Shandro. I get the sense that David Shepard is a good relationship manager. I, I get the sense that he's good at cultivating those relationships. So I think he'll probably be very successful in, in that aspect, it'd be interesting to see how he pulls that out. And Shandro is uh, incredibly intelligent, hardworking, like he, he's got a lot of, of hustle to him too. Uh, Shannon Phillips and uh, Minister Taves. I thought this is this one will be fascinating. Uh, Phillips has been in a portfolio that is a personal passion for her and it has shown in the legislature um, she's a passionate communicator she is you know this is a, a heartstring for her uh, what does that look like when she is going after Minister Taves who is in finance which is a very professional looking file um, so will uh, Phillips revert to sort of the things that she's comfortable in, where she can make those sort of passionate personal arguments, or will she attack Taves on a, a, a very, you know, professional platform on, you know, talking points, and will she be able to manage, manage that well? That'll be interesting to watch. I also wrote uh, down Hoffman and uh, Lagrande. Or LaGrange. Um, I, I've been saying LaGrange. Yeah, accent oh, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, I think Sarah Hoffman has been their most talented communicator. Uh, I think she's, she's brilliant. Um, easily, in my opinion, uh, the NDP's best asset. Putting her in education, in my mind, shows what the NDP is going to be focusing on this session, and in the short term, they're clearly going to have a lot to say about education uh, tactically. Uh, the last one, just for... You know, sort of interest is uh, Marie Renaud and uh, Rajan Sani um, I think Marie Renault made a misstep uh, this past week where she uh, sort of acted surprised that she was removed from the Premier's council. Uh, it, you know it it's it's called the Premier's Council. And I'm not sure if if she got the election night results, but um <laughs> she she you know she's She's not in the governing party anymore, and therefore is would not naturally be on that council.
1: And this was the the people's or the premier's council on people for on people with disabilities. Mm-hmm, and this mm-hmm. is yeah, and there's usually an, uh, an MLA, usually a government MLA, who's on.
3: Yeah, on never, that council. never has an opposition MLA been on that council. Uh, so I, I thought it was interesting tactically for her to um, react in such a you know odd way. Um, but, you know, I, I think that if she carries that um, tone with her into the house, I think she would be very unsuccessful. Um, and then I think uh, Marie Renaud is also uh, spurred on by her personal passions uh, and her dislike of Jason Kenney. Fair enough. Uh, but Sonny is is a long way off in, in the sense that uh, she's incredibly intelligent. Uh, she's, you know... Going to be amazing in that file, so I think it'll be interesting to see how those two mash up and and see if for no crashes and burns, which is my prediction.
1: Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Chris,
2: um i uh, I'd echo a lot of what Leanne said. Uh, I think Shannon Phillips is probably Shannon Phillips is built for opposition. I mean, <clears throat> she's a, an unbelievable communicator. She's passionate if she if you can get her on something that's she's passionate about its. It's tough to, to out-debate her. Uh, I think that putting her on finance is an interesting choice because that means she can attack uh, – well, that she can, A, attack the core promise of, of the UCP, which is essentially that, that uh, the government will be run better from a fiscal standpoint. And then she can attack any priority that the government puts forward in a budget. And, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to debate Shannon Phillips in the legislature. She is very good at what she does. Um, I think, and I, I would agree with you on uh, on Sarah Hoffman. I think she's one of the most talented communicator, or sorry, one of the most talented politicians in the province. Probably, um, she's. I mean, she she does her homework. She knows exactly what she's talking about. She she made very few forced errors. I felt during her time as uh, as Minister of Health, and she was Minister of Health the entire time. The entire time,
1: yeah, she was in, and. Yeah. In Interestingly, because she's she's now the official opposition education critic. Now she was chair of the Edmonton Public School Board before she was yeah. elected to the legislature in 2015. So she yeah. she also has a strong background in education.
2: Yeah, I mean, she i i would I wouldn't want to be the education minister if I were her. Or sorry, if I if I wouldn't be the education minister, I wouldn't want to be the education minister if Sarah Hoffman was my critic. Uh, but overall, I think this is a really muscular opposition. I think that the election is cut down. Uh, will allow the NDP team to really coalesce and gel a bit, a bit more, and, and I think they'll be a pretty effective opposition because I think that all the people that really stood out in the or many of the people that really stood out during their time, and a lot of people in the NDP caucus didn't stand out because they sort of didn't expect to get elected in the yep. first place. But the ones that that are still there, like like David Shepard, who wasn't a I don't think he was ever a cabinet minister nope. during the the during the when uh, the NDP were uh, the government but but he's a he's an excellent MLA uh, and I think he'll do very very well as an opposition MLA yeah and and you know like with and they have a lot more experience now as as a group I think they have I mean they certainly have more cabinet experience than the UCP caucus who I think has two people that were previously in cabinet I think well I think one other than Jason Kenney
1: well I think one I think Rick McIver the only yeah. uh, the only cabinet minister who previously served in cabinet and he's actually back in the t- minister of transportation role which yeah. is where he was before the tories lost in 2015
2: yeah that said though i mean the the premier's office clearly has a very tight hold on the, on the communications around the around the caucus i would too if i were if i were jason kenney i think jason kenney's a pretty good tactician or, and a very good mm-hmm. strategist and he's and i think you know, he's he needs to shepherd the the group forward for a bit, especially as they're trying to implement some pretty big things over the summer, like we talked about earlier. But yeah, I think. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, but I think they're going to have a. I think the NDP opposition is a very different animal than even the Liberal opposition would have been in, you know, two thousand four or whatever.
1: Yeah. 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 No, I think uh, with the, I mean, just the sheer, amount, sheer number of former cabinet ministers that are sitting in the opposition benches starting tomorrow. I think that'll propose, that'll pose a an, an very interesting dynamic that we haven't really seen in previous legislatures. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, going back to 2015, I think there was only, there were only a handful of PC, I mean, not even, not even a handful of PC cabinet ministers who were re-elected in the, in the 2015 election. And then before that, you really have to go back to the, the early 1970s before there were actually former cabinet ministers or, or a large number of former cabinet ministers um, appointed or in, sitting in the opposition benches. Yeah. Now, one of the things I found interesting uh, about the uh, the NDP critic lineup, and, and I think we talked about it on the last episode, was uh, whether it's whether whether it's a good strategy to appoint former cabinet ministers to become critics of the roles that they were they previously served in cabinet for. Now, most of the NDP ca- critics are not in the same position, who, who are cabinet ministers are not the critics for those roles, but there are a handful. Uh, Christina Gray is the critic for labor and immigration. Uh, I think Richard Fien is the critic for indigenous relations and there might be a few others. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on on whether that's a good strategy or not for, for the NDP. Now they didn't, it's not like a mirror thing. So like Shannon Phillips was not minister of finance and she's, she's finance critic. Sarah Hoffman was not education minister. She was health critic or health, health minister. Um, so some of their some of their stronger, I, I would say that the front bench of the NDP, and I'm talking about like Shannon Phillips, Sarah Hoffman, mm-hmm. um, uh, David Shepherd. I'd put in that front bench now because health is important. They're they, they're not serving in those same roles. But wh- what do you guys think about the that that dynamic in in opposition?
2: Well, I think like Leanne mentioned earlier that you can see with the with the really the the heaviest hitters
1: in the in
2: the NDP caucus. You can see where the NDP are going to put their focus and the priorities. I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. I think everybody else they need just to hold the line, and I think it, so. It makes sense to keep Christina Gray at at, uh, at Labor and uh, and Richard Feen at, at Indigenous Affairs. The um, uh, because that, that's not necessarily where the focus they think the focus is going to be in, in the in this first in this uh, in this next legislative or in this lex, next government session.
3: I, I would counter a bit of the cabinet talk just by saying that uh, Notley didn't put a lot of um, a lot of weight in her her own cabinet, kept them on a very, very short leash. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Notley herself, when assessing her cabinet, I didn't think very highly of them. And as it turned out, th- the voters didn't either uh, and sent uh, the Notley's sort of legacy uh, out. Um, so I'm not sure how relevant. Um, having four, people with four years of cabinet experience is uh, when given four years of opportunity to translate that into voter intentions, uh, that, was, uh, it, that didn't materialize in any meaningful way. Uh, so if, if the NDP that remains uh, can think through sort of where they went wrong when they were in government, and uh, translate some of those mistakes into okay. Well, now how do I take this in, and translate this into something that voters are interested in engaging about uh, what they did in the last term was unsuccessful? So how do I uh, how do I take health? I think that that is also showing that okay, uh, actually health is not a good, is not a good example because I think Hoffman did great there, but. Some of these portfolios they didn't translate well and are immediately being undone environment is in is, is, the bighorn would be a great example of something that uh, Hoffman or um, Phillips did such a tragically bad job of doing that it became a voter issue and you know was mobilizing for, for Albertans. so uh, uh, you know does voter does their cabinet experience translate i, I don't I don't know I, I, I would argue no
2: I think though Sorry, and I do I'm going I'm to keep this as short as I can, because it's a bit of a rant. But I think the the problem with the previous NDP government, and I think a problem that this current government is faced with repeating, is I think the the NDP government came in and they and they said, "Well, okay, we're going to fix 44 years worth of injustice and mistakes," and they and they use that that mindset to justify all kinds of different legislation that I think you know. Some of which I, you know, I'm a big fan of. Obviously, I've mentioned a couple pieces earlier, and some of which, you know, like something like with Bill Six, were I think big mistakes. Um, I feel like this government is almost doing the same thing, like getting rid of the like getting rid of the carbon tax, like completely. I mean, we're going to have a carbon tax whether it's at a federal or provincial level eventually. It's like it's not a, it might not be under Jason Kenney, but it's going to happen. It's going to like. I don't know if it's like pre- Premier Nathan Cooper, or and I don't know, I don't know who, but some money is going to inter- or is going to have to introduce some kind of carbon pricing at some point in Alberta. It's, it's just going to happen. Well, it, it, I mean, it'll be imposed on us. Well, whether whether right? even, even the, if the Supreme Court decides that that the federal government can't do that, whether it's ten years from now, five years from now, twenty years from now, there will be uh, some kind of pricing on carbon. You know, even if it's issued to us by the European Parliament in
1: 2080, <laughs> okay, the black helicopters uh, yeah, are flying yeah, all Yeah, with the Chris. black
2: helicopters and the yeah, and my little, little tinfoil hat. Um, I mean, the, we see legislation like that, and you can get rid of it as an as like a, as a an ideological re- reflex, or you can take a look at it and determine how can you make it really work for people. And I and I don't think they're doing that. And and I don't think the UCP is doing that. I don't think the NDP did, did that as well. I think they, they were just as reflective as the UCP is being right now. And I think that's a I think that's a bad cycle to get into. I think we're just swinging pendulums from one end to the other. And I'm I, I you know, and that might be the reality in Alberta for the next twenty years. And I I think this is an opportunity to break that cycle. Now I didn't say that four years ago. <laughs> so and so what would you have said four years ago? I mean, I think at the time, I, I thought, well, it's great that we don't have, like, this... the Like, the, the you know, say what you want about the PC party. They had clearly lost their way at, at before. I think Jim Prentice would, would have probably been a pretty good premier. Um, uh, he was a good person, and I think he had good intentions, and I think he was a, a pretty good... You know, he was a bit of an adult, and I think he, he would have, I think, been a lot less ideological than, obviously, I would prefer. But... The the party before – I mean, there's just so much rot in the party that it had to go. And I think uh, – and I was like – from a democratic point of view, I was really excited about that. So I didn't really think that critically about these issues. Uh, sorry, I didn't think about these issues uh, like I do now when they don't necessarily line up with my various ideological positions, which are both left and right, depending on the issue. Uh, because I'm not part of a political party, as Dave pointed out <laughs> oh twice earlier. Um, <laughs> but um, – It's interest, Chris. But yeah. – but for and and and, but you know, it, it wasn't hard to to say or to see after the first year that they had been. I think the NDP had been overly ideological in their first. In their first year, they they saw what the PCs were doing, and they're like, "We're going to do the opposite of that." So.
3: I yeah. I would rebut a bunch of that, um, starting with Nathan uh, Cooper would uh, never implement a carbon tax. <coughs> uh, that that would never happen. Uh, but I I think that. That um, so I, and I,
2: I wasn't necessarily saying well, he would. I just. I, I don't know like that we're going to have a carbon
3: tax. Like uh, you know, I, I'm I'm excited to talk about the federal uh, scene here in a bit. But, um, anyways, I, I think that the NDP um, extrapolated on their electoral victory last time, and I think that you've you've just outlined uh, they were more ideological than uh, voters allowed them to be. Uh, that's why they were rejected this go-around. Um, I think it, if the NDP had been more thoughtful as to the circumstances that they got elected, uh, not implemented a carbon tax right out the gate, the Bill 6 stuff, um, I, I, I think that that was, was not why they were elected. Uh, the difference with this government is, is Premier Kenny was very explicit in a, in, a, in a platform that's as thick as the Bible. As to why he was getting elected, Jason Kenney has a very clear mandate uh, and has been explicit in what he's going to do and exactly what that looks like. Sometimes in excruciating detail, uh, uh, (laughs) 19-point policy announcements during the campaign is is utterly unheard of. Uh, Jason was very thorough in his description of what his... Vision of Alberta would be like. Uh, Notley wasn't. In fact, Notley never even mentioned the carbon tax when she was campaigning because that would have been suicide. Uh, so I, I think that they're getting elected. They got elected for different reasons, and and we'll see. Um, I'm not really sure how how Premier Kenny would be more ideological uh, than he has outlined, or what space outside of you know the 300 and some point. Platform that he ran on what space would be outside of that that he'd be interested in in legislating on
2: so I would Disagree with some of that Uh, one thing I would disagree with is that the idea that the UCP got elected because they had a good policy platform I think the UCP got elected as a reaction to I Don't think there's anything the NDP could have done to win this election I think Albertans were going to vote for a conservative alternative one way or the other because I just didn't like the way the NDP were doing things. And I I bet if you asked most voters, they couldn't, sorry, I bet if you asked a large portion of voters, they couldn't really clearly articulate why they didn't like the NDP or why they were voting for the UCP other than what you might have seen in in either party's um, uh, talking points throughout the election. So I think that being overly ideological at moving forward, I think that the UCP are at risk of making the same mistake to uh, uh, as the as the NDP were. I think they have a. I, I don't think. I mean, clearly they have a mandate to govern. What they have a mandate to govern about, I think, is maybe a bit of a question mark. I think, and if I were Jason Kenney, I'd say, well, I made all the I put all these plans out, and people elected us in droves. Uh, therefore people people want uh, all of this stuff to happen i think when they start implementing those things i think people are some people are going to be like hold on a second i'm not so sure about this now um no that doesn't apply to things like if you think that jason Kenney wasn't going to come in and try and remove the carbon tax i think you i mean you, you haven't weren't been paying pay, attention you to you anything, weren't, anything you, were, you for weren't you weren't paying attention years, yeah uh, later on down the line, you know, education, some education reforms. Uh, you know, when when he if, the, if they start making changes to health care, which, you know, I don't think they will, not because I don't think that they have the will to do it, but because I don't think any political party necessarily has the will to make massive changes to health care that that really uh, reduce costs. Uh, but if they if they were to start making massive changes to health care, I think they might get a bit of a, a pushback. I think that at some point in the term in this term. The, uh, the UCP will have will do what in the course of doing what they said they were going to do, overplay their hand with a public who maybe didn't, I don't think, looked at the policy proposals from either party really that closely going into this election. I'm not calling voters stupid. I'm just saying I think we had a much more – I think the electorate this time and last time, uh, 2015 and 2019 – Had a much more visceral and emotional reaction to the with the opportunity to vote than maybe we have in previous years.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, Points that you both raise. I mean, Leanne, you mentioned the the NDP may not back in 2015. The NDP may not have really reflected on the circumstances that led to their victory. And I think when you look at those at the kind of the electoral, I mean, look at the 2015 election, you look at the, the years that led up to the 2015 election, and then you look at the results of the 2015 election. Those are, there's a very unique circumstance in Alberta politics. And I think that not, it's not necessarily the same thing, same thing in 2019, but I think there were unique circumstances in, in, in 2019 that the UCP should, should also reflect on. A couple things about the, the NDP when they formed government, I think they did start off as an activist government, um, a lot of the legislation that they implemented, um, I think, was, was pretty broad, and, or broad or specific, but pr- pretty um, progressive and in a way that maybe may have gone a little too far for some Albertans. I think that, I mean, we talked about Bill 6 already. I think Bill 6 was a disaster that ended the NDP's honeymoon before it needed to end. Uh, and I think it needlessly alienated a lot of Albertans. And I really think that Bill 6... Um, I mean, as well as the the economic downturn and, and the effects of that was a real driving force for uh, voters, especially in rural Alberta. And we saw some massive margins of victory for the UCP in rural Alberta uh, coming into the in the 2019 election. Now, what I'm going to find what I'm going to look to see what, I, what I'm going to be looking at over the next few years is, are those voters going to be happy with what they voted in terms of the UCP? So the UCP gets rid of the carbon tax that gets rid of Bill Six or elements of Bill Six that people are unhappy with. Um, looking into the 2023 election, uh, are the UCP going to be delivered? Are are they going to be del- be able to deliver on the promises that led to the, such a massive voter turnout? I mean, we talked about in the previous episode, Grand Prairie Wapiti had an 80% voter turnout. That's massive. That's like unheard of yeah. in Alberta. El- like in El- over. Yeah, exactly. So the, so when you look at the at the the UCP's large margin of victory i think they got 52 or 54 percent of the vote a lot of that is due to the the massive turnout in in rural alberta they got big they got big big majorities in the cities in the small cities and they got big majorities in a lot of calgary ridings but really the big turnout their big support was in rural alberta um so it will be interesting to see if they do come out similar to how the ndp did and and implement a real activist conservative agenda um Will that re- will that resonate well with those voters, or not? Not even just rural Alberta, but but voters who supported them in the cities and the urban areas. So I think that the activist conservative agenda this time. I think,
2: uh, I think that's where I think Leanne is. And I think you're really right about. I think there are areas that that have that they're very like the carbon the carbon tax very clearly. If you pull the you know whatever percentage of Albertans you probably get a a very large majority saying yeah get rid of the carbon tax. Um, now the people that say no to it would probably be very passionate and articulate about why they why they think they should keep it. But the um, but very clearly, Albertans don't want the carbon tax, and it's very clearly going to go. I think that the conservative activism in this government will be more limited. And I think it'll be for things that are very uh, that they have a very clear public mandate on. I think if they go any further than that, I think there'll
1: be a, there'll be a, some problems. Um, and do you, do you think this is because of the control that like the political control from the center, like from from the premier's office is what I mean. Do you think they'll they'll try to limit that or, well, te- or temper that?
2: I think I think that this government uh, to me appears pretty practical right now. Like uh, I think that they're going to like, for instance, I think they're going to keep municipality try and keep municipalities very happy. Right. And whether that whether they had a mandate to like, I, I don't know exactly how, but I think like certainly all your infrastructure projects are going to, I think continue to be, um, continue to be funded. I think they're going to really try and keep municipalities happy or happy. But yeah, I think there's, I think there's some control from the center. I think there's a plan. I think there's a strategy for more than six months. Uh, and, and, and I mean, and that control from the center, I don't think should be taken as a criticism. I think Rachel Notley was very controlling. Absolutely. Himself, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think that's just the, you know, like, no one has a
1: team like Laheed did, for instance. like Well, Lougheed didn't have a team like Lougheed did. That's, yeah. a, that's yeah, a, the yeah, mythology yeah. of Alberta <laughs> politics, right? The Camelot. It never really yeah. existed. Well, you know, the five they, guys they, running up the they, stairs. Their you know? they, yeah. big advantage is they just had, like, on a daily basis, yeah. billions of dollars flowing into the banks. Well, I, they had I to mean, find stuff to do. Oh, we'll build more hospitals. Yeah. We'll I build mean, more schools. I mean,
2: well. that like, we don't.
1: We'll create a heritage fund because yeah. we don't have anywhere to put th- – we have to yeah. to put this money somewhere.
2: Yeah. Let's make it earn 3% interest. Let's buy an airline. And yeah. Let's rate it in the, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but, no, I, I think it'll be – I think that conservative activist period will be a lot shorter uh, and maybe, maybe have a bigger impact, but it will be shorter.
3: I think that uh, – and I'm happy to predict this here first uh, – that next election, uh, UCP will pick up uh, a bunch more seats in Edmonton. Uh, I think that this election was a jobs um, election, and I think that a lot of um, people with public pensions, uh, et cetera, in Edmonton were worried about their jobs uh, with a Conservative government. And I think the NDP did a really good job of, of, of scaring people about what Jason Kenney would be like. Um, Jason has appointed the most—his uh, his cabinet is, is way more diverse than uh, Notley's. Uh, there's, they speak 13 different languages— And I think that uh, Premier Kenney is going to um, prove to Edmontonians that, you know, frontline workers aren't going to go anywhere. And that that this sort of activism uh, that the left has been sort of uh, trying to scare Edmontonians with isn't going to materialize in the next four years. And Jason is going to prove himself to be a very competent, efficient manager of resources of the government and the bureaucracy. And I, I predict that we pick up a bunch more Edmonton seats next election. We're
1: already making already. predictions for the next election. More I'm more not, I, I am not even <laughs> so bold. Bring it on. I don't know. I'm, I'm, wait and see. I think if you look at the,
2: the numbers in Edmonton, I think, you know, as much as it's like a, an island of orange and a sea of blue, those, those numbers are a lot clo- The NDP vote totals and the ECP vote totals are a lot closer than I think most than people would assume given the results. Mm-hmm, 100%. Uh, I think that, and that's why I think partially the UCP will be trying to keep municipalities happy because I think that will drive a narrative within the in Edmonton and Calgary that like oh you know. Um, didn't turn out as bad as we you know we, we thought it would and yeah. well they only uh, laid
1: off 50,000 of us not 100,000 of us <laughs> <laughs> no one got oh. laid off and there's not yeah. not
3: military <laughs> in the streets or whatever the left, uh, left okay. scares no. people with. oh I don't, I don't think you can call <laughs> Paul
1: Martin left <laughs> I yeah, think that's the,
2: a, that's, that's, that's but, a stretch <laughs> but, uh, but no I, I think I think there's a real risk of what I, I think the end's on, totally on the right track uh, there's a real risk of that of that happening if the if the opposition isn't doesn't prevent it properly and you know, just pointing and ringing the bell and saying shame, shame, and everybody is
1: is not going to get that done. Well, there you go, I folks. Con- Conservative hegemony, uh, <laughs> the return.
3: I think that if if I was uh, advising uh, Nile or or if she stays on as leader or whatever, if I was if I was advising the NDP caucus, and this is would be tricky for them, uh, but I would say go look at how Stephen Harper governed when he first got elected. Now I, I get it. Uh, but most of the base was unhappy. We didn't defund CBC. Uh, where's our aircraft carrier that I was promised? All of the things that, uh, that you know, we sort of wanted as, as our version of the carbon tax never happened. Uh, Stephen Harper had a very incremental government. He took what he had. He understood why he was elected. And he was elected because of a very corrupt liberal government. And he he earned the trust of Canadians by... Not being an activist, and I think that if Notley had of, Notley had have taken some time to think through uh, being incremental and earning the trust of Albertans, she'd be in a different place. And I think that uh, for her to or the NDP to govern again, they need to uh, put some thought into an incremental approach to earning the trust of Albertans.
1: Yeah, just just to, to follow up on a, on, the, on that point and a point that I, that I, I realized I made the beginning of a point earlier uh, and didn't it didn't finish off when when I was when i was talking about the ndp being coming in with more of an activist agenda when they were when they initially formed government in terms of some of the legislation they put through i think that they tried to transition like maybe midway in their term to more of a centrist more of a moderate position uh and i don't really think that worked for them uh because i think they had alienated those the, vo- the voters that they wanted to get from be- acting more like a lahidi Lougheed- lahidian uh more center left-ish government, I think that they, they'd kind of missed, they'd kind of missed the boat on that already. But the question is whether, uh, and I don't, I won't dwell back too much on, 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 on the NDP government, uh, the former NDP government at this point, but the question is, is whether they... Uh, whether the NDP ever really had a chance of getting reelected anyway. I mean, I think 23, 24 seats was probably might have been the best the NDP could have hoped for. And I think that they during the election, they faced a lot of criticism for running, you know, quote unquote, a negative campaign. And yeah, it was negative. But I think that's kind of what they needed to do to uh, to to get to where they were.
2: Yeah. I. So the point I made about the UCP doing better than Edmonton that I think you than people expected, I think you could say the exact same about. If you think about the 2014 and you showed someone the vote totals the NDP received without any other information in 2019, they would have been like, oh, my God, that's incredible. Like, I can't believe that happened in Alberta. Uh, I think the NDP is has cemented themselves as a real governing possibility in Alberta moving forward, which, you know, like was was unthinkable. Six years four, ago, four four years and six months ago. Yeah, right. And so I I think they've I've, to their credit they've done a really good job, um, of of making themselves the the like the other party in Alberta and like at a time of when you know I mean. The Liberal Party of Alberta was in that position once. The Alberta Party was in that position once. Not never the Green Party, but like. The Wild Rose was even in that position once, and none of it really materialized. And the NDP, I think, I mean, obviously they're not in government anymore. That's exactly where they wanted to be. But I think they're in a better position than a second-place election winner has been in Alberta in a really, really long time, both in terms of seats and in terms of vote totals and in terms of affinity with voters. So... And I think that that's a, an alternative if the UCP falters or the UCP does stuff that people don't like, then I th- that people have a, have a clear alternative.
0: The Dave Berta podcast is made possible in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. Folks like you can start an endowment fund, either for yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. You should also check out Vital Signs. It's an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure exactly how the community is doing. This year's focus is on five topics, women, sexual orientation, and gender identity in Edmonton, visible minority women, and senior women. You can learn more about vital signs and just about everything else Edmonton Community Foundation does at ecfoundation.org. The Dave Berta Podcast is also made possible in part by the Edmonton Public Library. And if you haven't already, you need to check out Overdue Fines. It's a podcast created by EPL, hosted by Bryce Crichtenden and Caroline Land. And on this podcast, they discuss things like movies, music, books, pretty much everything any sort of popular culture and media you can think of, and maybe even some you've never heard of before. You can find out all about what you can find at Edmonton Public Libraries, and this pod comes out every two weeks. So if you're thinking of maybe supplementing your Dave Berta listening with some other great pod, you need to check out Overdue Finds. You can find the show at epl.ca slash podcast, and everything else related to Edmonton Public Library at epl.ca.
1: So the federal election is fast approaching, October twenty first, twenty nineteen. We are in the zone. Are we technically in the red zone? Is that what political parties would say? Uh, where? I think
3: that Saint John Baptiste Day in Quebec is the kickoff for the election in Canada. I think that's sort of the ring the bell, hit the doors.
1: And and I'm speaking to my western ing- western ignorance. Even though I am, uh, I come from French, I have French Canadian heritage. I have no idea when Saint John Baptiste Day is.
3: Uh, it's around, I have no idea either.
1: Okay, that well, whenever that July, is, it was July. Okay, then that's when it starts. Is it around Bastille Day? Is that, uh, is that yeah, the same time? Leanne's reference there just
2: shows me how well I'm going to do in this next segment. Good luck, buddy. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
1: I got notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so what we're, we're at the point in the year where uh, uh, I think the uh, politicians are getting ready to hit the hustle and uh, hit the barbecue circuits around the country and in their ridings. Candidates are gonna be out, you'll probably bump into one because they'll be knocking on your door or interrupting you when you're gardening in your front yard uh, this summer. Uh what do you think Canadians are gonna be talking about on the barbecue circuit this year? Or what I guess I guess what what are the what are the politicians gonna be talking about? Um ooh.
3: liberal corruption.
2: Liberal the, corruption, I think, is I wouldn't have said that three months, four yeah, months ago. For, yeah, exactly. And here like god damn, like here we are, like I, liberal. Well, I think they're going to be talking about liberal corruption. They're going to, and and conversely, they're going to be talking about leadership and and qual, qualities to lead. I think, I think the uh, aside from there was not much corruption talk in this last election. I think to the credit of both parties, uh, in the provincial election. I think this election will be a like look at how corrupt these people, and then look at how scary these people are, and I think I think that's going to be the dominant discourse in this election
1: it's gonna be really sad but do you think that's do you think that's what like normal people are going to be talking about
2: yeah i think that's all normal people are going to be equipped to talk about because that's all we've been talking about for the last seven months
3: i don't know and i was actually thinking about this on my way in when was the last time that justin trudeau had a a day on message um i I, i'm not sure but it it hasn't been in the past six months Uh, that's
2: He's not... Suicide. He's not doing well. It, like, the... It is... The shine has, The shine's come off fast. Um, I, I, I don't think anybody could objectively say otherwise. I, I don't even... I don't know, necessarily know what the polling numbers look like in Atlantic Canada and the Maritimes and Quebec and, and portions of Ontario. But, man, like. The, like... The, it's been a real plummet.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really it's quite phenomenal when you think back four years ago and I, someone was someone said this to me uh, a few weeks ago was the day after the last federal election when Trudeau, you know, they would just won their big majority. Uh, they'd come from third place or third place in the previous parliament to to win a, ma- a big majority. And Trudeau was in the, uh, the subway, so the metro station in Montreal, taking selfies with people who are going on their commute. And he just seemed totally politically invincible at that point. Uh, and then over the past six months, it seems like the floodgates have just opened. And like we're talking, so there's the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott and SNC-Lavalin scandal. There's the Mark Norman thing. There's like, and this is just like this is two or three of of the things that that it's just this constant like day to day, and and they just can't seem to control. They can't seem to control their message or or change the channel on anything. Mark Norman's. Uh, you know, and like LinkedIn, you like describe yourself as like.
2: He has a LinkedIn account. He has a LinkedIn account. Okay. And, uh, like, in my LinkedIn, I was like, say like trusted Evantonian and or trusted advisor and enthusiastic Evantonian. His is embattled leader. That's amazing. Good <laughs> oh, for <geez>. him. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> he's like branded himself with this, and he's just clubbing everybody over the head with it constantly. I, yeah, the, I mean, I've I've seen Justin Trudeau speak. yeah, uh, in like i've been in person to see him speak and years ago this is uh, you and i went to uh to a thing that he's speaking at and i remember thinking wow like you know like yeah. there's wow there's something there like people people are really connected to him that's this is a kind of incredible actually well and, and,
1: and at the time contrasting to stephen harper yeah who is not known for his charismatic speech at rallies and charismatic speeches it was it was a different completely different style no but people i think
2: it had like like leanne said i think an affinity
1: for Stephen Harper in a different way you like, no, that's, that's what I mean maybe, it was maybe a different way was a different type of a different yeah. different type of, is a different type of politician maybe,
2: maybe you didn't like Stephen Harper, but you you know you you felt like he was you could trust him to get a, something done
1: kind of like a mackenzie king
2: yeah 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 and uh and that's like that's a that's a powerful feeling for for voters and Canadians to have about you uh toward the end obviously they didn't feel that way but the um But since, you know, contrasting what I saw back then and what I'm seeing now, I'm just like, where did it go?
3: I think that it's interesting to uh, to reflect on Trudeau's value proposition. And I think when he was getting uh, during the last campaign, him v. Harper, his value proposition was, I understand. And while, you know, Justin Trudeau, you know, has had nannies and all, you know, richer than anyone I know and, and is just generally a fancy person, Um, he, he, he had his value proposition was cargo shorts and a t-shirt on the front lawn. He, he, he connected with people on a personal level and this sort of sketchy operating nonsense. Um, because Canadians have put themselves in his shoes and have seen him as a neighbor, as a friend, as the as guy that they, you know, kick a soccer ball around with. Now they've lost that. They've lost the value proposition, which is I can stand up for you because I understand what your lives are like. Uh, Canadians are like, wait a second, I, I would never act like this. Like they can immediately put themselves in his position and be like, I would never do something that underhanded, that dodgy. I would never treat people like that. And it is such a personal um, feeling when you react to someone that you you have related to as a neighbor I and mean, like man you're you're dodgy
2: yeah and i don't think and i think that maybe at the point we're at now i think you can really see how they didn't take advantage of the the liberals didn't take advantage of the team that they had like like mark arneau uh christina freeland like these are smart accomplished people that i think are really serious about governing and they just haven't been able to be the face of their government and the face of their party. And the, I think a way that would, would make, I think the prime ministers fall from grace, a lot easier to handle from a, from the liberal party's perspective. Well, um, like Mark Garneau is like actually a Canadian hero, like actually. Um, and what, and like he should be, you should be able to, he should be able to slide in as a backup when the, when the prime minister is not doing so well. And he's, they're just, they just haven't established that.
3: I would disagree. Mark Garneau taking photos of him, charging up his, you know, two hundred thousand dollar Tesla, is is counter to the reason why Trudeau got elected, which is unrelatable. Having Christina Freeland go on on a world stage, and sort of, you know, seem unserious in many circumstances, sort of feeds back into Trudeau's weakness of of just being a joke on an international stage, I, I think that both of those two people, um, you know, while they have, I, I agree, Mark Garneau is is an absolute hero. Uh, I, I don't understand why they didn't choose him as a leader. But those two people in particular, I think, feed into Trudeau's weaknesses at current.
2: Yeah, uh, but I, I think like that, I mean, the Tesla thing was a bit of a, was a bit weird, but it's no weirder than, you know, gassing up before the carbon tax goes in with, you know, the 15 jerry cans I bought that cost, eighty five dollars and I'm actually not saving any money uh, I mean it I, I mean that they're, they're trying to speak to their to their constituency at this point and I think mm-hmm. um, I, thought, I thought Christina Freeland uh, comported herself pretty well during the whatever the Free trade agreements are called uh, now, like or whatever the free trade U- negotiations U- are called. USM.
1: Well, it's called something else in Canada. CA it's the
2: it starts with the C in Canada and it starts with the U in America. Of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> like like it's. it, and no, it starts with No the one the no course. one's on the same page okay. with this. So, um, and, and like no, I, I agree that no one's perfect, but, um, but I just I don't think that they've, I think they've, haven't fostered the talent. I, I think they haven't shown themselves as a team. Nearly
1: as much as they should have throughout. So is this because Trudeau is like it's team Trudeau basically like,
2: Well, the whole world was so excited about it because like Justin Trudeau's like like he's a fancy person and he's like a fancy person that said the all the right things at the beginning and I mean just hasn't been able to keep it up,
1: you know I, I one of the things I found fascinating after the last election now I didn't I didn't vote for the, the Liberal Party in the last election. I voted Liberal in the past, but I didn't vote Liberal in 2015 um what, one of the fascinating things I found about th- the reaction from people outside the country, um, I'd run into people from at different conferences and, and, and when we'd be traveling around or traveling out of the country and we'd, we'd hear from people, my wife and I would hear from people who'd say, Oh, that's really exciting. You got to have such a progressive, great progressive leader, uh, like Justin Trudeau, who's been elected and people were very excited. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't unexcited about Justin Trudeau. I was more excited about Stephen Harper not being prime minister, but mm-hmm. uh, but I, I definitely didn't share the enthusiasm that a lot of people from outside of Canada and Americans and Australians and Brits kind of felt about about uh, Trudeau being elected and the kind of the promise that he represented almost internationally about this, you know, the, the liberal democratic order. I went to New York in 2016, and I got
2: into an Uber, and they found out we were Canadian. And all he wanted to talk to me about was how much he loved Justin Trudeau.
1: Yeah, I found that I found that kind of annoying. I,
2: I liked that. I I like the I like that feeling. Yeah. Of like, wow, you've got such a great country to elect somebody yeah. like that more than I liked Justin Trudeau.
1: Well, yeah, but because I mean, as a Canadian, I I felt that you know I. He he didn't, was never going to live up to those expectations, those expectations. He wasn't even living up to those expectations at that point.
3: Yeah. One of his missed opportunities is there are very few globalists at the time. And Trudeau had a, a bit of a window there to be one of the sort of globalist leaders. And he didn't take advantage of that. He went to India, screwed that up and has basically exited the world stage, went to France and offered some, some wood or something. but
1: Steel for, for the Catholic Church.
3: Yeah, very, very grateful, uh, etc. But Trudeau had an opening there to be a leader on globalism when the rest of the world was turning into isolationism, and he did not uh, take that stage. And I, I think that this is a great example of something where I, I suspect if you get in a cab now, no one's going to be asking about Trudeau because he's, he's virtually vanished.
1: But is anybody going to be asking you about Andrew Scheer? Andrew Scheer, I think, does not
2: inspire a significant amount of confidence. Like, um, the, I mean, that's the, probably the nicest thing I can say about him right now. I'm sure he's, he's a very nice guy. Uh, I've, I've met him once or twice, and he seems – he's very affable and very nice. And, but, like, if you look even at his answer, somebody asked him about abortion – um, the uh, on TV the other day, and whether that was like a, an ambush question or not is a, something we can debate. But his his answer was not a professional politician answer. It he stammered over the entire answer. It was it was bad. It was like a train wreck um, on an issue that he must have known he was going to get asked about. Um, and so I, I mean, Andrew Shear is probably. I, I would say if I were Justin Trudeau right now, I'd be pretty happy that Andrew Shear was my opponent. Uh but that said, I I don't know if I don't know if there's enough to I, I don't know between the two of them whose uh whose disadvantages are gonna this is really about whose disadvantages are going to overtake them first. And I don't know who it's gonna be.
3: I think that Andrew Shear's value is that he is has all the things that Trudeau should have had. Um, he has a very competent team around him. Uh, he is, he is relatable. Uh, he is very humble. Uh, all of the things that Trudeau should have been this sort of, uh, you know, normal guy that understands what your life is like. Uh, Andrew and his wife Jill and their kids are, are as painfully normal as my family. And after having a, a fancy pants. Uh, Prime Minister, I I think that Canadians are going to appreciate that. They're going to appreciate his collaborative um, leadership style. I think that uh, Scheer has put a lot of his front bench in the window. He's done a lot of of work putting, you know, Lisa Raitt, um, um, Michelle Rempel, and what is Candace? Uh,
1: Bergen, Bergen, Yeah. yeah.
3: He has put a lot of his high-level talent in the window. They have been everywhere. They're excellent communicators, and I think that he has shown a really collaborative approach. And after Trudeau, I, th- I think that that is going to really resonate with Canadians.
2: Yeah, but I think that team, I think the I think he has the opposite problem of Trudeau. There's so much sunshine on Trudeau, and then they didn't share it with the team early enough. The problem with Shear's team is that Michelle Rempel is far more dynamic than Andrew Shear. I think can ever be, and like – the, you know, it, if he's an everyman, that's great. But I, I still don't think Canadians are going to really know who he is come election time. Not, not just like, I don't know what Andrew Shear's about, but who the hell is Andrew Shear?
1: Yeah, and I think this goes back to the. I mean, going back to the Conservative leadership race when Shear won what on the fifteenth fifteenth <laughs> no, ballot? I think or? on the thirteenth ballot. Thirteenth ballot, 51%, fifty one
2: percent fifty. 2% of the
1: against Maxime Bernier, who's totally fallen off a cliff at this, the political uh, the political cliff at this point. But I, I think mean, it, he, he drove a Delorean over yes. the political <laughs> cliff, and it's still falling. Yeah. Uh, the uh, um, one of the, one of the things I, f- I I mean found interesting that that race and the, th- those results were it seemed at the time, and I mean correct me correct me if I'm if I'm wrong or you disagree with me, but I think it felt like the big dogs were kind of staying away. Jason Kenney decided not to run for the federal conservative leadership because there was an impression that Justin Trudeau was safe for the next election, that it would be better to to run in a future federal election, run for the conservative leadership federally. And then this guy named Andrew Scheer, who most Canadians had never heard of because he was never a cabinet minister. He was speaker, which is like a very important role in the House of Commons. But like, no one uh, yeah, no yeah. one ten 10 feet out of the house of commons has any idea who the speaker is yeah it's very cool if you're in this room yeah so you get to wear the robes yeah. and the and the the, yeah. the, the, the hat and and uh, yeah, and tell costume. the guy with the mace where to go yeah you got a costume uh yeah and there's guys with swords who follow you around and yeah. stuff but um it felt very mu- to me it felt very much like okay well you know we are not going to win this time so we'll pick this guy who's people inside the party like he seems kind of competent um he ha- doesn't really have the same kind of connection To the Harper government, that most a lot of the other candidates who were cabinet ministers who were high profile had, and then all of a sudden, Justin Trudeau's star starts to fade, and and uh, and we're in a position now where the scandals, there's this kind of floodgate, the floodgate of scandals had opened opened up six months before the election, uh, and he's in a position to potentially become the next prime minister. Um, I don't know if this was, I mean, obviously, when you when you're you know going to become a political party leader. You have to believe you can win. You have to believe you can you know, become prime minister. You have to act like that and, and yeah. actually, actually believe it. Otherwise, it'd be pretty unbearable to be in that position or for the people around you to work for you. Um, but it feels like Andrew Scheer m- could become prime minister, not because of Andrew Scheer, but because of Justin Trudeau.
3: I don't think that uh, conservative heavyweights were afraid of Justin Trudeau at any point. I, I don't think that. I, I think the idea that he was sort of. You know, this shiny guy uh, has always been apparent, but that he would fade quickly, I, I think, has been a sort of common thought in conservative circles. I think that's why 13 people ran in the, in the CPC leadership. I, I don't think anyone shied away from the chance to take on Justin Trudeau. So, you know, I, I think the fact that it was such a healthy leadership that went on for freaking ever, um, you know, would maybe counter that a bit.
2: I, I think that leadership race was a lot of I think I think the conservative loss came came quickly. I mean the Liberals were I think the liberal I think the conservative loss in that election was, was relatively unexpected. Um at least from the you know, six months, eight months out. Because mm-hmm. I remember the Liberals were like way, way behind and then somehow like, you know, like
1: Well the N D P were in second for yeah, most the and they might have been second. leading and at one point and then was gonna be Prime Minister and everyone was like, I don't know about that.
2: And then Justin Trudeau ended up being prime minister, and I think after that there was a lot of uh, conservatives pointing the finger with one hand and covering their ass with the other, and I think they thought that this would be a, like a transition period for the party. And so I, I, I do think some people stayed away. Um, the I, I can only imagine what I can only imagine what Justin Trudeau's fate would look like today if his opposition opponent was Jason Kenney. Like, it would be, mm-hmm. like, Jason Kenney's undoubted, like, again, like, a, you know, a, I mean, Jason Kenney, I think, is a stronger communicator, politician, and strategist than Andrew Scheer I think it's just, like, I think it's just a fact. Um, I mean, this is all it's a hypothetical fact, but um, the, uh, or it's a hypothetical that I'm, I'm posing here, so maybe Justin Trudeau would have been a lot better, like, would have comported himself a lot better at the beginning of the year and maybe wouldn't be in this mess if Jason Kenney was his opposition, but... But I – yeah, I just – I don't know if – it's a bit of a race to the bottom in this federal election, I feel. Uh, the, I think, um, you know, the, the Liberal Party, if, if they can regroup, I think they'll have a pretty good chance because I, I don't think that Andrew Shear is quite dynamic enough to really capture people's imagination across the country. Um, but I think they're going to have to do it as a team and not on the strength of their star prime minister who, like – you know, gets real good accolades on the daily show, but you know you need people in flint and Manitoba to to believe in him. In P- people in Flint
1: Flon, Manitoba would never vote for justin yeah, Trudeau but, you know, anyway well, <laughs> a few I'm sure a few people
2: <laughs> like Justin Trudeau and flint in manitoba, but but you know my I mean my point is you can have all the international accolades you want um,
1: but you've got to get it done at home, and they're going to need to do that in the next six months. So, so one of the things that I one, one, one of the advantages that that I've heard some people say could help the Liberals going into the next election is the NDP and the NDP not doing so well in the polls. Um, I completely forgot that the NDP were even in this election. The and, federal and and NDP. and we should mention them because I think they do have forty some seats. Though I know a number of their an, a, a, a growing number of their MPs are not running for re-election. They've they've kind of struggled uh, under Jagmeet Singh. He's now in the House of Commons when well, they won a, won a by-election, uh, but then the Greens came out, I guess kind of came out of nowhere, but not really out of nowhere if you were paying attention to this specific race and, and won a by-election in, in Nanaimo Ladysmith, taking it away from the NDP. Um, what dynamic do you guys think that the NDP and the Green Party might play going into this election?
3: I actually have a, a bit of a theory here. Um, so bear with me for a minute. The What is happening on the left right now looks very similar to what happened on the right in the 90s so in, in my mind um in the 90s we on the right spend a lot of time sort of trying to implement what our framework of morality was like on voters and voters as it turns out uh, don't really like it when you when you sort of tell them how their life should look like And at that time, the Liberals, uh, well, I think most Canadians believe they were corrupt. Uh, Their proposition to voters was, we'll give you a a healthy safety network, um, safety net, uh, uh, and we're going to stay out of your personal lives. That's up to you. I don't care who you marry. I don't care what you do. Uh, I'm going to stay out of your personal lives. Uh, Here's the safety net. Uh, And then I think that that has flipped, where the left is splintering – I, in many ways, because the left has what they believe is their, theirs isn't religious, but it is around lifestyle. You know, high density housing, cars are the worst, you know, and people that drive cars are are bad and we need to tax, you know, tax everyone until they ride bikes in the wintertime.
1: Do, do you have a Twitter account? <laughs> 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 and sorry, sorry. as it <laughs> turns out,
3: Canadians do not like being told how to live their lives. Uh, and, and Trudeau and uh, Catherine McKenna and David Suzuki are the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker of the left, where they are flying fancy planes around. Their carbon footprint is bigger than all the people that bike in Edmonton put together, and no one believes them. They have no credibility. So the green morality voters have, have fled the left into the Green Party. Because if you're going to vote on People Should Bike in January in Edmonton, you've gone green. The, the liberals have no hold for you there. And Jagmeet can't clearly explain what his left sort of morality box looks like. So I, I think that we're going to watch uh, sort of a green sort of wave happen well, the NDP sort of sorts out what their environmental proposition is, what their morality box looks like, and i I don't think that that it will that it will help Trudeau because he or I, I guess it, it will hurt Trudeau enormously because he he's he's Jim Baker in this situation where he you know he's been to Florida four times in his airplane and the, and the environmental morality voters are want no part of that. they don't believe him. Um, and, and ordinary Canadians are already have adjusted their life how they recycle. They buy organic products. So, so I think that the left is, is just going to be shattered until they, uh, like we did, uh, united and stop telling people how to live their lives and go back to their safety net to business and leave us alone. Good luck.
1: <laughs>
2: Chris? <laughs> well, okay. So first of all... <laughs> Everybody's environmental footprint is bigger than all the Edmonton bike- bicyclists put together. That's the whole point. Uh the of the riding the bicycle along the awesome bike lane in Edmonton, the bi- the great bike lane network we have in Edmonton. Um the um uh you know, I, I agree that there there definitely there's a consolidation happening, I think, on the left. I whereas the conservative consolidation I think was like really purpose driven and on purpose and like strategized and a, and was like a set of compromises that everybody made that that you know allowed for a very success. What I would believe is a very politically successful uh, conservative government under Stephen Harper. Uh, on the left, I think that it, there's just collapse. I think that I think the in, the federal NDP is is I mean falling out of touch. I think with a lot of their own voters, and I think people are flee- fleeing to. Some of them are fleeing to the liberals and some of them are fleeing to the greens. And I think, I think, I don't know how much longer the federal NDP in its current state can continue to to represent voters. It's not the party of Jack Layton anymore. It's not even really the party of Thomas Moclair. Um The, I think if the federal NDP starts looking more like the Alberta NDP looks like right now, or looked like in the last election, I think they, I think they have an opportunity to capture more voters, but the way they're, the direction they're headed right now. And just, I think you might see a real collapse in this election, which I think will probably end up benefiting the Liberal Party and boost the Green Party to like six seats and the biggest election night party will be at Elizabeth May's house after that. But they, because they'll be like, yeah, like we're, we we picked, you know, we got a hundred, we got 300% more seats than we did before. <laughs> um, but I no, I think... I think there's real danger that Jagmeet Singh might be a real, a real disaster for for the NDP.
1: Well, so, I mean, I guess the question is for the NDP: is is their goal realistically to form government, or or is it to form a, uh, a like a real progressive opposition? And I think that's the the struggle that a lot of new Democrats that I've spoken with have had about Jack, Lay- about Jack Layton, about Tom Mulcair, and their role as as party leader. And mean, Jack Layton, i you know realistically potentially almost leading the party to or leading the party to its largest opposition and almost to government in, in 2011 um, that the the criticism I've heard from more traditional New Democrats is that they dragged the party to the center to, they tried to take the position that the Alberta NDP did provincially which is definitely more of a centrist position more of a becoming more of a, of a liberal party than an actually Democratic party uh, and I, I just looking at the At that environment right now, I just don't see there being a mood for that. And I think this kind of goes into what Leanne was talking about. I think there's a there, you know, not the bike lane stuff, but uh, but I think there's a there is a shift to to becoming more the NDP move, trying to move the NDP more to become more of a leftist party, uh, rejecting those kind of kind of neoliberal uh, uh, neoliberal tendencies that have, have driven the, 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 the federal liberal party and that have taken over to took over the the NDP in the in the 2000s I
2: so I think the biggest I think the biggest issue in Canada uh, aside from the economy which just like kind of keeps everything going is obviously I think the environment and and climate change and I think Canadians in large part aren't willing to do what I think it really would take in order for us to, to properly do our part globally for climate change. I know Leanne's going to say like well when China does their part then then, uh, <laughs> then Canada can do its part but that's like I don't think that's really the way that we can approach the this situation but um, because I don't think Canadians are really on board with some of the more radical things that I think we're going to end up having to do in like 2050 when mm-hmm. people can't grow corn anymore. Um, the uh, I don't think that the, I, ultimately, I don't think that the policies of the Green Party or the or the NDP or the federal NDP are going to appeal to the to any kind of majority of Canadians. Uh, I think the Conservatives and the and the Liberals are really the only game in town. I think those two are going to c- continue consolidating seats across the country with some probably a little bit of hope for the Green Party. But if the Green Party ever has more than ten seats in my lifetime, I would be shocked.
1: Well, they, they, they just formed official opposition in Prince Edward Island. So, of yeah. all places, that was
2: a very interesting election, Prince Edward Island. That was a very congenial election, I think. Uh,
3: Islanders are nice people.
2: They uh, are. Islanders are very nice people, but I think it started pretty badly. Then somebody died. Yes. And they were like shaking hands and hugging, and yeah. and they postponed the, the election days. in
1: that one electoral district because yeah. uh, because of that. All but
3: campaigns ceased for the rest of the election. They there there was no. Provincial-wide campaign after after wow. that, uh, Emily and his son died.
2: Yeah, wow.
3: I I, I would uh, getting back to your your green argument because obviously I want to uh, talk about the environment because <laughs> I, I think Catherine McKenna is Tammy Faye in my analogy. I'm um, gonna have to
1: post like a Wikipedia uh, <laughs> link to who these. People. I, I'm I'm not even totally sure who these people okay, are. Okay, so
3: they're they are religious leaders from the 90s. Uh, they ran a church and got caught uh, doing massive fraud. So they, they're totally uh, not credible with uh, evangelical religious Christians, which uh, sort of fits perfectly with my analogy on the right in the 90s. And Don- Donald
2: Trump is credible with the evangelical yeah. religious Christians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So I, I would argue that if your voting issue is the environment, and um, that you've, you've looked at the liberals and you're 100% correct, if you if you honest to god are like the world is going to end in 10 years if we don't uh, fix the environment naturally you would want Catherine mckenna to take immediate action with china and india correct like if if you were like the world is ending in 10 years who are the major polluters okay well what have you done to deal with them have you have we have we done uh, i'm not just saying like let's you know do something crazy have we talked about green technology have we talked about OK, um, if, if you're going to import products from China, they need to be environmentally sourced, like mm-hmm. uh, it, anything. Any conversation like that around China and India, if environment is your mainline issue, obviously the liberals are, are, have no part in, in that scenario for you. The NDP doesn't look credible uh, federally. I think you go Green Party because it, they are the ones. Now, the interesting part would be when does the Green Party – get uh, proper scrutiny uh there there are some crazy people that have gotten involved in that party i i'm confident one of their candidates denied the holocaust um you know it, that that would be their issue is if if the green party can clean themselves up together in in short term here uh i i, I think that they they could replace the ndp as sort of a third party um and then if, if you recycle and you buy responsibly and the environment is, is your number two issue, you go conservative. Uh, there's no reason to stay in the Liberals. They haven't done anything on the environment anyway. And, you know, how's the economy? Like, it, Trudeau isn't strong on that either. I think that it's the Liberal Party that and the NDP that sort of uh, gets split there. Those voters go, Justin Trudeau hasn't done anything for environmental environmental voters like if, if that's your number one issue you're not voting for him
2: but there's I think a question a fairly open question about whether the conservatives believe that this is a problem at all uh, No, which, I- which is something you really have like I mean like the in order to address what China and India are the emissions coming out of China and India and getting them to change their environmental practices well you're going to have to do that as an international coalition, because obviously those two countries have just such massive economies that they can really do whatever they want. But you have to, as like as Prime Minister of Canada, you have to believe that in the first place. Uh, and you have to believe that it's enough of a problem that it's a priority that you should take on, a major priority that you should take on and expend political capital both abroad and at home on. And I, I don't know if Andrew Shear is there.
3: I think that conservatives, uh, where environment is your number two issue, are as credible as the liberals are on this. Uh, the liberals have talked a good game, and they haven't done shit.
2: I mean, but be that as it may, they, like, I, I know at the very least that they actually believe it. And, like, believing is, like, it, you know, it's like Peter Pan. All you have to, like, the first
1: step is believing. I and, think and
3: Peter Pan is the theme of the Justin Trudeau government. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, and I, I – I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it speaks, speaking of the world oh, of make believe, I, I, I don't, I don't think that either of the two main political parties, the liberals or the conservatives, uh, really um, have the uh, have the political will. Or really, the intent to do what needs to happen in order to t- to combat climate change, and I think that that looking at the NDP and looking at the Green Party, well, the Green Party and even the NDP, I think that a role that one of the roles they could play, if they're not going to be one of the not going to be these run to the center parties on, on every single issue, is to push the environmental issue, is to push climate change, yeah. uh, to pull that Overton window uh, over towards uh, closer towards something that would 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 actually resemble serious uh, serious um, uh, action on climate change. And if we end up with a minority government after this uh, October election uh, with the, the NDP or maybe even the Greens holding the balance of power, we might actually see something more closer than, you know, something that's actually like a legitimate action on climate change. Yeah. Yeah. So. We're going to move over to list questions right now. We have a bit of a mailbag.
0: Uh, I'll read these out and, and you guys can uh, give us your hot takes.
1: Sure. Okay. We'll do uh, do a... Uh, a round robin. A round robin. So to speak. We're, we're going to start.
0: This actually dovetails nicely with the last topic. Uh, this question comes from Jason West. What implications will the imminent federal election campaign have for Alberta politics? We didn't really get into that. Uh, but maybe, Leanne, can we start with you on that one?
3: Happy to. I, I think that we have just talked about the carbon tax, and I suspect that um, all conservatives across uh, the province of Alberta will be... Um, actively engaged in electing Andrew Shear and dealing with the federal carbon tax at a federal level, um, so that we can be uh, free of the, this carbon tax nonsense.
0: Chris, what do you think? I think that
2: the most effective conservatives in Al- or in Alberta in the federal election will be the ones that go and volunteer in BC. <laughs> what do you? I don't think I don't think Alberta is rem- even going to be a remote battleground. Sure, in, in Canada, and wh- you know, like we could get rid of. I mean, Alberta could single-handedly defeat the national
0: carbon tax, and it wouldn't win them an additional seat here. Fair enough. Yeah. What do you think, Dave? Same deal?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Alberta's not a battleground. There's The Liberals have three seats. They'll be lucky to hold three seats. The NDP have one seat. They'll be lucky to hold one. Uh, they're so far behind in terms of nominating candidates. I think the Liberals have four candidates nominated right now at a 34 or 36 ridings, and the NDP have one or two. So wow. Alberta's not really i i doubt alberta mps will spend much if any time in alberta during the next election it's not really
0: a canadian election it's more of a ontario quebec bc election at this point yeah yeah
2: yeah. right yeah like there's, there's not a lot there okay
0: all right well our next question comes from stephen mcpherson uh with a solid ucp majority and zero alberta party seats do you see any of the defectors who left over kenny or the merger From the uh, that went over to the Alberta party trying to return to the UCP. What do you think, Chris? Is there going to be a they're going to open their arms and it's a big tent?
2: Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know much about the internal dynamics of the UCP, but though, man, those people that went that that left over over Kenny or over the merger, those people burned bridges hard. Yeah,
0: I mean, they lit those things on fire. (laughs) Leanne, you're a little bit more of an insider, I would say. What do you think?
3: I, I think that if you uh, try to actively, uh, I think anyone thought the Alberta party was going to win. So if you actively were trying to get the NDP elected, you should probably take a sit down for the next little while and, and, and think about what you've done, time to go to your room, <laughs> uh, and, and, and think about things. Uh, you're, you need to think about what your priorities are. And if it's just, you know, I'm, I don't like Jason Kenney, then, then you should probably stay in your room for a while
1: penalty box for some of those people dave what do you think uh yeah i think i, I think some of them will probably i mean the, the the allure of power the 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 things that that they may have liked about the progressive conservative party previously might draw them in uh, i think it'll depend on what the ucp does on uh, on some of these social issues that i think really divided the alberta party and the ucp i mean the alberta party is really they're basically conservatives who don't have a problem with gsas so right. we'll see what
0: happens all right Okay, our next question from Josh DeGroote. How strongly should the NDP oppose UCP legislation that fulfills clear election promises? So the UCP, for example, was elected with a mandate to cancel the carbon tax. The NDP would obviously prefer it to stay in in place. Should the NDP still strongly oppose? Dave, what do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the UCP, I mean, the UCP have a mandate. They won a majority. They they got a majority of the popular vote. Uh, But the NDP were also elected on, on their own platform. So, yeah, I think they should fight fiercely.
0: All right. Uh, what do you think, Leanne?
3: I think that th- this would actually be a great opportunity for the NDP to do some reflecting. Uh, of course, they should oppose whatever the conservative government is doing, and that's sort their of job. Uh, but if they can find a way to make this relatable to a, a broader uh, a group of voters, that would be really a stunning piece of work. I- if they could oppose things well, also appealing to uh, Calgary suburban voters, um, that would be a show show of strength and, and dexterity.
0: Is that even possible, Chris? Uh, I think
2: so. I think the I don't think the role of the opposition party is to kick the government in the teeth constantly. I think part of the role of the opposition party is to. Ensure that all Albertans' viewpoints are, are represented and reflected in, in the in the legislature, and that those concerns are brought to the um, to the UCP uh, or to sorry to the government, not to the UCP. This is um, uh, so. I mean, I think it's possible, uh, but I think I think people are going to have to step out of their own sort of like
0: political requirements for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. um, Our next question from Lost and Curious. What are your thoughts on using provincial tax dollars to sue the federal government over the carbon tax, which will in turn use tax dollars to defend it? It seems like a giant waste. Is it a giant waste, Dave? Isn't Confederation great? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: Welcome to Canada.
0: It's not the it's democracy is the worst system except for all the others. Well, except for that could, system could that Federation. they used
1: on Game of Thrones to pick Bran as the new king. Oh,
0: spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> can I beat that out? <laughs> the broken? No, no. no, no it's, already, right. it's already, already. Everybody, uh, everybody's seen it. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? <laughs> Is it ludicrous that? I thought it was crazy that Cersei Lannister lived and turned into a spider. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, I I saw it coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think
2: it's generally ridiculous when governments use provincial tax dollars and federal tax dollars to sue one another and um you know these are these are the differences that we expect high functioning leaders to be able to sit down and talk about, and talk about um generally speaking when i think of the federal government or the provincial government does something like that it's entirely for political points and it has almost nothing to do with uh with what people in in the uh, in the province or the country actually need uh it's just you know like it's just a troll twitter account to <laughs> to one or the other like you know So, no, I think it's a stupid and complete waste of time, and everybody should just stop doing that.
0: Leanne, lawsuits.
3: I am so excited that Jason Kenney is our leader. Uh, So after having Rachel Notley pander to the feds and get some social license that I'm not even familiar with where that is now— uh, I'm excited to have someone at the reins that's uh, going to uh, stand up for our spot in Confederation and get this nonsense carbon tax out of our lives.
0: And and you're okay with the use of tax dollars to make that happen?
3: We do worse things with our tax dollars like transfer payments. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
1: that'll be, that'll be the topic of our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, our next question uh, has a, uh, not even a lengthy preamble, a lengthy postamble. And I'll explain once you get a chance to answer this. Uh, what this particular asker was asking. So Reese Winder wants to know what your thoughts are on the political future of one-time Alberta Party MLA and leader Greg Clark. What's, what's next for Greg Clark? What do you think, Chris? I don't know. You, I don't know what he's doing right now. You can probably
2: <laughs> throw a tweet at him and you can ask him yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not sitting in the
0: legislature. That's for damn sure. Leanne, do you see a political future for Greg Clark?
3: I, I I can't imagine what that would look like. You know, I, I thought Greg Clark was a great guy, and what Stephen Carter and all that nonsense did to him was absolutely tragic. And I think that it was reflected in their results. I, I think Greg Clark's a great guy, and I wish him the well. Wish him well, whatever he's doing.
0: Dave, do you think he's going to be the next leader of the whatever's in Alberta?
1: <laughs> I, I I don't know if he has any interest in, in that. I think uh, I think uh, Leanne's right in terms of what. Uh, you know, what, what happened to him, um, being, uh, displaced as, as leader of the Alberta party when he was the only leader and only candidate to actually win, win an election under the party banner, um. I, I, I think that he probably would have had a much better chance getting reelected in Calgary Elbow had he remained the party leader. Is well,
2: is he, he really the only one ever in Alberta party history? Elected. elected. Yes, so there have been floor crossers. Yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah. yeah, Dave, Dave Taylor, Taylor from and, the Liberals and, and then... then who, uh, whoever was left from the PCs or,
0: or uh, Rick I don't know. Rick
1: Fraser and, uh, to keep track. and uh, Karen McPherson. Yeah. yeah. Now,
0: Reese asked this question because Reese is a huge uh, Greg Clark. I, I keep wanting to say Clark Greg, but that's, uh, what's it's his name? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah. Um, that would be cool. Too. <laughs> I'll just read the last uh, bit of remarks that Reese sent in. To be honest, I think that Greg Clark is just too good and honest of a politician to hang up the skates yet. And he he suggests that maybe he might maybe run as mayor of Calgary or something like that when she decides enough is enough. I actually think him being too good and honest of a politician means he'll never be a politician again. I would agree. I don't think that
2: I don't think that our current political system necessarily draws our best and brightest out. In fact, in some ways, pushes them away.
0: Fair enough. Our last question. This is a, this is an interesting one, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. This is from Jonathan Hyman. He wants to know, how do I encourage my MLA to focus on issues that were not brought up during the election campaign? Realistically, how would I actually make a change in law happen? So this is question about organizing it sounds like. What do you think Dave?
1: Well, I mean I guess it depends what your issue is. Um I mean the 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 encouragement I'd give I'd give John, Jonathan and I don't know what he's ad, what he, what he wants to advocate for but um you know first do your research and see if your MLA has talked about the issue or has a history of 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 uh, of opinions on the issue that you want to you want to focus on and meet with your MLA Talk with them um, they might you might find that you you know you have something in common or that they find your issue interesting and it's something worth pursuing um, and if not your MLA, maybe there's another MLA in the legislature that uh, that might be interested in, in taking, uh, taking on your issue All right so not, not all hope is lost.
0: Fair enough. Leanne, what do you think how can how can a citizen effect change uh, for something that maybe wasn't promised in the election?
3: I'm not sure what that would be based on the breadth of discussion during the the last election, but uh, I I would start affecting grassroots, uh, sort of finding like-minded people, uh, organizing, having coffee parties, trying to convince others of your opinion. And then once you had sort of a substantial uh, little group together, I I would present your opinion to uh, your MLA or a group of MLAs. I I think um, you know, th- there are sometimes things that are overlooked in elections. Uh, but go around, make sure that other people agree with you, and that it's not just you know you and your dog had a great idea. You you need you you need uh, you need some sort of uh, coalition of the willing.
0: You need at least one other person and their dog. One hundred percent. Chris, what do you think?
2: Um, I think that uh, I think that individuals make this kind of change all the time if you can make a compelling argument. To not just your MLA, but to a number of MLAs, give them the tools that they need to go around and shop it around and within the halls of power to to make a, to make a change. I think that's absolutely possible. I think I mean obviously the more people you have behind you, the better. But they're depending on the issue, you can make a real case to 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 make a small change or to make even make a big change as long as you can give uh, a as long as you can give an MLA something that you know give them the tools.
0: More chocolate microscopes. More chocolate microscopes. (laughs) You know those (laughs) guitars that are like double guitars? (laughs) 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 And that's it for the mailbag. Thanks for all your questions, everyone. Those were some really good ones.
3: And that's it for this episode.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: Thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart for helping put the show together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. And an even huger thanks to our two guest co-hosts who joined us today. Thank you very much, Chris and Leanne, for joining us. Uh, it was really awesome, and hope we can have you guys back some point in the future.
0: Great job, guys. Yeah,
1: that'd be great. Uh, send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca.
0: Thanks for listening,
1: everyone.